Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. This morning we are continuing in our series, Connecting the Dots, talking about how the little stories in the Bible tell God's big story and helps us understand our story. And uh, that's part of a reading plan that we're doing together as a church called the E100 on, a, on an app, the Bible app, uh, version Bible app. And so if you're um, joining along with us in that, this week we are doing, this next week, we will be doing weeks, days 36 through 40. Those are the days, forget the dates, but 36 through 40 are the days of the plan. If you haven't done that, just get started. Get started right where we are right now, and, and it'll fit with the sermons that we're doing, and you'll have a chance to, to read the comments of how God's speaking to other people through his word, and um, it's a great thing to be a part of, so we invite you uh, to do that, and thanks to those of you that, have, that are keeping up with it. Um, this, this week, uh, we come to a section called The Rise of Israel, and the way that I'm going to do this is go through the little story First, and then I'm going to talk about how it ties to our story, and then I'm going to end with talking about the big story and how it all fits together. So, here's the start of this passage. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. Uh, so in the, in the sweep of things, last week Ken was talking about um, judges, and uh, he and I talked about this, how judges is like the wild, wild west of the Bible. So a little bit of the big story. Abraham is the, the father of the Jewish nation. He's the start of that. He has a family. That family ends up down in Egypt, and they're enslaved for a few hundred years. And then God calls Moses, and Moses is a little bit like the George Washington of Israel. He's the one that leads them to freedom from the evil Pharaoh, the evil King George. And, and so they go out into the desert, um, and then they get into the promised land, and Joshua is a little bit like Lewis and Clark. He's the one that explores. Don't, don't work too hard on this analogy because it breaks down pretty fast, but he, he gets them into the land. But then they get into the land, they occupy the land, they see what they've got, and there's no law and order. And so it is a bit like the wild, wild west. And, and the judges that Ken went through are like the Clint Eastwoods of the Bible. Like there's a new sheriff in town and he comes, you know, comes in and, and restores law and order, but then Clint never stays in one place for too long. And so they move on from, from judge to judge. Samuel is the last and probably the best of those judges, but not good enough, which is kind of the theme of this thing, you know? <laughs> and, um, and so the people come to Samuel and say, Samuel, you're getting old. And your sons are kind of worthless, how to win friends and influence people, you know. And so we'll, we need you to appoint for us a king, like all the other nations have a king. It's working out for them. That's what we want to do. And Samuel says, hey, if all the other nations jumped off a cliff, would you jump off a cliff? And they're like, yeah, we would. And, and that is kind of what he says. Now, the, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Another way I think you can think about this time period in Israel's history is like the American colonies pre-American revolution. So in Israel, there are a bunch of tribes. Abraham, Isaac, had Jacob, had 12 sons, and they become the 12 tribes of Israel. 
And initially they're brothers, but hundreds of years later, they're like seventh cousins, you know? And so they occupy the land and they get their space. And there's like the tribe of Dan and the tribe of Asher and the tribe of Ephraim and the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. And they've got different geographies and different needs, you know? And they've all got militias, but they don't have a standing army. So when the Philistines attack them, they have to organize before they can respond. And it's like Delaware and South Carolina. Those are two totally different places, you know, in Pennsylvania and Georgia. I don't even know if Georgia was a colony, but you know what I mean? We had different geographies, different economies, different needs. And so we wanted to unite. Um, And that's a little bit like what they're facing. It's a little different because um, we were trying to get rid of a king, King George, and they're asking for a king. But really, and it says here, they're trying to get rid of a king. They're trying to get rid of King God, which on the face of it seems like a really bad idea. And there is another sermon that I preached a few times about how God was a tough king to follow because God had a habit of getting in a really difficult spot so he could come in and save the day and show you how much you need him. And so it's understandable that they're in this spot, but still not a good spot um, for them for them to be in. Now, this is part of how Samuel responds. Uh, he says, this isn't going to work out for you. Let me warn you. And so he says, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. And I'll read through this fast and just you'll be listening for, for one thing in it. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He'll take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. 20 times, he, himself, his. Here's the warning. You put a king in place, it's going to be all about him. It's not going to be about you. It's not going to be about God. It's going to be about him. It's really another way of saying power corrupts, And absolute power corrupts absolutely, and that's what you're setting yourself up for. And Samuel finishes that saying, In that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. This is a little bit, in the big sweep of things, a little bit like going back to the Garden of Eden, where God says, Don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or surely Uh, you will die. When you start thinking that you are smarter than God, you are setting yourself up for trouble. You know, this is Samuel saying, God is smarter than you. And just like Adam and Eve said, no, I don't think so. And uh, Israel's going to say, nope, I think we got this. And you and I do this all the time. Say, no, God, I think I I know what I'm doing here. Um, that's, That's what they do. They say, here's our plan. God, what do you think? And God says, I think it's Pretty horrible, but I know I'm not going to be able to convince you otherwise, so go for it, and we'll see what happens. Have you been there uh, with the Lord? Are you there? And, I, you know, all of us, because none of us are following Jesus perfectly, all of us in some aspect of our life are doing something like this. Some aspects of our life are much more conscious at the forefront than others. And so there may be some part of your life where you just know God has said one thing, but another thing makes sense to you, and so you're going in that direction. That may be a job. It may be a relationship. Um, it may be, you know, 
um, not, not seeking reconciliation and a friendship. Um, it may be a habit that you just refuse to work on or a purchase. It may be a lot of things that we just go the other way. Now, for Israel, here is to me the crazy part about their plan. God blesses their plan to reject God. So let me fast forward this thing, uh, a whole book of the Bible. We're going to go from 1 Samuel 8 to 2 Samuel 7. And it says, When the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. So they get a king. The first king is a king named Saul. And that starts well but ends badly. Saul, the Bible says, is very, very kingly. It says he's a head taller than everybody else. I don't know why being tall makes you kingly, and I'm a little bitter about it, but that's, that's what it is, and he's a good-looking guy. Uh, but there's some warning signs early. When they come to anoint him king, he's hiding among the luggage. They're like, hey, Saul, come on out. Let's make you king. And so that you know, should have told them something. It could be taken as humility, but really it's insecurity and a lack of faith in what God has called him to do. And that is going to come back to bite everybody in the butt. So Saul, but he does experience some, some success and some victories. Then David comes on the scene, and David is not very kingly, but is full of faith. You know, one of the first things we see about David is the David and Goliath incident where Goliath's taunting the armies of the Lord. David says, nobody talks about my God like that, and says, I'll take you, and you know, and, and he expresses huge faith. And so then he comes on the scene, and people are like, ooh, Saul's killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands. And and then, you know, things get wonky between Saul and David, and he disappears, but then Saul dies in battle. And then David becomes their king, and they unite behind David. And here, the king, David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies. And it just seems weird. Like, they're rejecting God as king, but God says, I'm going to make that work out well for him. If I were God, I'd probably do that differently, you know? Like, you want a king? Go ahead and get a king. Let's see how that works out for you. Uh, you want to run away from home? You know, go ahead. Don't forget, don't forget to write. We'll see you later. I found out a couple weeks ago that one of my kids uh, tried to run away twice, like made it to the corner, tried to run away twice. I think packed a bag. And I didn't even know about this. And Bobby Joe's like, yeah, all right, go ahead. Let us know how it works out for you. <laughs> and he still seemed a little bit uh, frustrated by the thing. Um, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't mean that rejecting God is a good idea, um, but, but there's just something strange about the way that God handles that. But then I, I thought about that and thought there have been times in my life where I wasn't pursuing God at all, and God definitely taught me lessons during those times. But man, God has blessed some of my worst plans in ways to prepare me for future plans that he has for me. And God is at work at levels that I could never have imagined. When I got out of college and was in grad school, I had a chance to start a company that was all about my ego and the opportunity to make money. Um, but God, God, and I look back, God blessed that thing enough uh, to get me down here and gave me some, some godly coworkers that become, became real mentors and, and really influential at a key time in my life. And I've always been a little bit confused by the fact that God blessed me while I was rejecting him. And I shouldn't be confused by that because it's the gospel, but it's a bit of what's going on here. Uh, was crowning their own king a good idea? No. Did God use it? Yes. So this story goes on. When the king lived in his house 
and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And, and here's where the story um, and it takes what is kind of a surprising twist to me. Now, Nathan is a prophet. Someone that I was listening to pointed this out this week. Nathan, Nathan is like a pastor. This is his church, and a, and a wealthy guy in the church has just offered to make a big donation. No pastor is ever going to say to that, like, going to ask a lot of questions. They're always going to be like, yeah, go do what the Lord has put on your heart. You know, he's not overthinking this thing, but maybe he should have. And if you're, if, if you're God, and David says this, um, you know, how do you... How do you think God's going to respond? And I might think God would be like, well, yeah, David, thanks for thinking about me. You know, I did notice your house is, is pretty nice and my tent is looking pretty shabby. You got those granite countertops and I still got Formica. I was wondering when you were going to move me out of the low rent district into your neighborhood. Uh, but God doesn't respond like that one bit. Here's what he says. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I haven't lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel, to, for, of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God seems to me a bit edgy about the whole thing. You know, like if, if I want a house, I'll ask for a house. Don't patronize me like that, David. Like you poke the bear a little bit. And I don't know if you've ever gotten a response like that. When you're trying to do the right thing and someone in authority kind of stomps you down in a way that is communicating to you, listen, man, you have no idea what's going on right now. Um, I thought of one incident in my life where I was, I was on a missions trip and I was in my I don't know, late 20s, early in ministry. And he sent us around the country to, to meet with these church planners. I went and preached at this one guy's church. Then went out to lunch. And then this guy just starts giving me a laundry list of complaints about how things are going and he's not being supported. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to take this back to the guy that brought us on the trip that's the leader of the whole thing. And, uh, and maybe this is my role and I'm good at what I'm here for. And then I go back and I tell Jay, as soon as I start, he's like, oh, why'd you even listen to him complain about that stuff? Tell him that he should come to me if he's got a problem and not go through you. And I just felt like, you know, uh, reprimanded a little bit. But I needed it because I realized I, there's just something about this. I have no idea what's going on. And that's what is about to happen here. There's something fundamental about this situation that David doesn't understand. Now, um, this is how I tie it to us. It's called the rise of Israel because things are going well for Israel right now. They have peace on all sides. But when things go well for us, a few things tend to happen. One of them is this. When things go well for us, God tends to become an afterthought for us. Uh, David is already living in a house of cedar when he thinks about upgrading um, God's tent. And a house of cedar doesn't sound like much to us, but a house of cedar back in the day was a big, huge deal. You know, he is on lifestyles of on the rich and famous. He is, he is living in a, in a house in Malibu on the beach. You know, that's what he's living in. But he only thinks about God after his stuff is taken care of, and he takes a breath and realizes, oh man, God's still living in that tent we've been hauling around for hundreds of years now. 
Uh, and there is a parallel. Most of, us, most of us tend to come to God when things are bad, and we forget about God a bit when things are good. Um, next week is about the fall of Israel, and there is a lot of seeking God that happens during the fall of Israel. A lot of the Old Testament, the prophets, the Psalms, happens in the context, not of things going well, but of things going really poorly, and God, what do we do now? And that's true uh, of our lives. C.S. Lewis has a, a, a known quote, well-known quote, where he says, we can ignore pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, and shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. David has gone through pains uh, leading up to this point and cries out to God. Israel goes through some pains and cries out to God. But when God gives us rest from all our enemies, like God is, he's on the back shelf. He's on the back burner. Um, and just tell me that's not true. You know, when things, when things start going well for you, you, you stop attending church as much as you do when things are getting a little bit tough and they're out of your control and you wonder where God is or maybe what you did wrong. It's just how we think. Um, that you stop reading your Bible, a little, that, that you stop praying a little bit uh, when things go well as compared to when things go wrong. And there's a reason for it, which I'll get into in a minute, but it, I think it's worth noting in this passage. Here's the second thing. When things go well for us, we tend to give ourselves too much credit and we give God too little credit. Uh, and I think in this passage, God's response is really based on that. And it does sound like David is patronizing God a little bit. Like we've got it all together and so let's help God out. Let's do him a favor. And I think it, it's what God is objecting to. There was a, apparently, it's a common thing in the ancient world. It was a common thing for a ruler a king to build a temple for a god, and then that god through a prophet to speak a blessing um, upon the ruler. There's kind of a I scratch my pack and you scratch um, you, you scratch mine type of thing that goes on between rulers and kings. But that is not what's going to happen here. Um, David thinks he is going to do something good for God, and that's not even bad. There's a passage in Chronicles uh, where where God affirms the intent of David's heart, like he's gentle with him, while still telling him, you've gotten this whole thing wrong. Uh, you don't get it. And God is about to declare a massive blessing on David's house, his dynasty, his family, his line, without David doing anything for him. And that is the, that is the gospel. That is the difference between our God and other gods, between grace and law, between thinking we can earn God's favor by doing something for him and responding to God's unearned favor. And that carries through throughout the entire Bible. We are in this law paradigm that we can do enough for God. And really the whole Old Testament is convincing us, no, you can't. <laughs> like you can't, and because of God's grace, you don't need to. Uh, and that's why I think he ends up giving himself too much credit and God too little credit. Um, the passage goes on, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, and now recognize the contrast between the he and the himself and the his of the king and the eyes of God. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you, with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. 
and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people, and I am the one that will give you rest from all your enemies. Uh, One pastor named Eugene Peterson wrote this about this passage. He said, I think David was just about to cross over a line from being full of God to full of himself. David, riding the crest of fame, having decisively defeated the opposition, united God's people, and captured the allegiance of all Israel. He was heading toward success, and he'd begun to think he could do God a favor. But if David continues to develop along these these lines, he will be ruined as a representative of God's kingdom. If any one of us develops an identity in which God and God's grace is less important to who we are than our own action and our own importance, our ability to represent God's kingdom is utterly ruined. And David is edging into this territory. And that may explain the problem of celebrity pastors and Christian leaders that are falling left and right around us, (laughs) is getting caught in this trap, um, which may be somewhat exacerbated by the culture that we live in. I'd say a few things about that. Like, just because God is quiet doesn't mean God is active. Uh, That's one of the hardest things for me about following God is much of the time he seems pretty quiet. Um, And he's not. You know, he's given us his word so that we can depend on that. And there are times when he speaks directly, it seems, into different situations. Uh, But a lot of times, it's just you're just not sure, you know. And I think David assumes in that vacuum that we are the only actors on the scene and that he has accomplished more than he has. And it's just one of the hardest things about following God is, is knowing when God's the one that connected the dots for you or when you did it on your own. Um, we're in a, a time right now as, as uh, parents and as a family where my oldest son turned 18 this week, which is crazy to me, um, crazy. And we're proud of who he is and who he, he's becoming. He's a great kid, and, and he, but a great young man. He's a great man. He's not a kid. He's 18. And he's going to college in the fall. And so we're working through that. And college, you know, we've got four kids. This is an intimidating thing, and it has been forever. Uh, um, and and when, when I went into ministry, um, I, don't, I want to be careful with this because I don't want to be I don't want to be whiny about this. It just took a big pay cut to go into ministry, and we knew that. And that's not, Oak City pays our, our staff based on, a, on market surveys, and, and what. so I'm not, I would never complain to the church about getting paid. I might complain to God every once in a while about seeing people in a track that I was on and what happens, and not the impact on me as much as it is on my kids in this situation about college. And so for years, we've been like, God, we're going to trust that you're going to take care of that. <laughs> you know, given the resources that you've given us and be faithful, but having this low, maybe mid-level anxiety about how that's actually going to happen. And now we're starting to see, you know, how that's happening and how he's proving himself faithful. And I feel like, you know, he's saying to us, listen, I've been at work the whole time on this, and just because you couldn't see it, you freaked out about it in a way that you didn't need to, right? Like, let's learn a lesson here. Uh, and so he's at work even when it doesn't seem to us like he's at work. And that's what's happened in this situation where I think David thinks we're the ones that did this and God's the one that gave them rest from all their enemies. I say this too, consistent gratitude is what keeps us from overestimating our contribution and underestimating God's. And it's why that's a theme we hit on 
and the Bible hits on all the time, is the, the, the need to be grateful to God about things that you can see directly what he's done, but even things that you can't um, because he is the one that's at work behind the scenes. Now, here's a third thing in this passage that I see that tie to us. When things go well for us, we assume that God's goals are the same as our goals, um, that he thinks the way that we think. And here's where I see this. David doesn't, and Nathan doesn't either. They don't have a hint that God is going to respond like, this seems like such a great idea to them. We got a house, God's in a tent, let's build God a house, everyone will be happy. The section of the reading plan and, and this thing is, this, is called the rise of Israel. And, and from Israel's perspective, that's what it is. They are unified for the first time. They have become a military power. Um, David is a beloved leader. Uh, his son Solomon is going to be known as the wisest and the richest man in the world. And so they, to them, it seems like they are on top of the world. I don't think God looks at this section and entitles it the rise of Israel. I think he reads that and kind of rolls his eyes like, you guys just don't get this. The kingdom that they are creating is nothing compared to the kingdom of God that he has created us for. And God knows they are in such a tenuous position that isn't going to last long. In a couple of chapters, David is going to, to see a naked woman whom he wants and because he, his power he can get, who is the wife of a friend, and then he is going to kill the friend to cover up what he's done and abuse his power in massive ways, like ripped from the headlines of today of the way that people abuse their power to cover things up. And he would be canceled many times over rightfully in our day. And God knows this thing is such a house of cards, the rise of Israel. Solomon's going to become a train wreck. Their kingdom's going to divide in two and eventually get carried off into exile. And we've been saying this, and Ken said this weeks ago in one of our, um, our prep sessions, that the Old Testament is really long because we are really stubborn. Uh, we are going to try out all sorts of things that we think are going to work and give us the life that we're made for, and it's going to take us a long time to realize just how much we need God. And this section, the point of it in the big story might be even a good king ain't good enough to do God's job. God may have fast-forwarded their military victories and given them rest from their enemies so that we can get through this and realize the good king isn't, isn't going to do it. That's not what we were made for. Uh, our, I think I'm safe in saying it's our primary, I mean, it's not true in all situations, it's not true of all people, but generally, I think our primary goal in life is comfort. That's what we want. We want comfort, we want security, we want abundance, we want stability. Um, I think about, we have, we played this when I was kids, and it's still around now, the, the, that little game, the game of life, you know, when you go around the board, and you want to get a good education, and you want to get a good job, and you're going to get married, and maybe have a few kids, and have a nice car, and have a nice house, and boom, you win the game of life. <laughs> uh, God's like, that's so lame. You guys settle for so much less than what I made you for. And I think God's primary goal is relationship. And the rise of Israel doesn't lead to good relationship with God. And a lot of times that's true in our life. And even our human relationships suffer in the context of abundance but can thrive um, in, in the context of, of suffering and pressure. So they assume that God wants to move from a tent to a house, and they totally forget why God's in a tent in the first place. 
You know, when, when God tells Moses to make the tent, it's so he can tabernacle among them. He can dwell among his people and come down and be among his people. God, newsflash, God's got really nice houses in heaven. You know, he doesn't need this house of cedar. That's nothing compared to what he has. He's not about houses. Uh, the tent was for a specific purpose. And even the temple, when he gets it, is a way of expressing, like the tabernacle, we come to God on God's terms. It's about relationship and understanding our relationship with God. I heard this um, this week. It's a quote from J.I. Packer, and he's talking about Christmas, but it really lends into this passage because the tent is about incarnation. It's about relationship and God being with his people. And so Packer, man, he gives the business to the church in this little passage. He says, it's our shame and disgrace today that so many Christians, he said, I'll be more specific, so many of the soundest and most orthodox Christians go through this world in the spirit of the priest and Levite in our Lord's parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan who passed by um, the man who's been, been robbed and beaten, seeing human needs all around them, but after a pious wish and perhaps a prayer that God might meet those needs, averting their eyes and passing by on the other side. That's not the Christmas spirit, nor is it the spirit of those Christians whose ambition in life seems limited to building a nice middle-class Christian home and making nice middle-class Christian friends and bringing up their children in nice middle-class Christian ways and who leave the sub-middle-class sections of the community, Christian and non-Christian, to get on by themselves. The Christmas spirit does not shine out in the Christmas snob, for the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor, spending and being spent to enrich their fellow humans, giving time, trouble, care, and concern to do good to others and not just to their own friends in whatever way there seems need. It's like David wants to elevate God to his upper class in this instance uh, existence because that's where he thinks God belongs. But God's like, you totally don't get it. <laughs> that's why I'm down here is so that the rich can become poor to make the poor rich, that we lose our lives in order to save our lives. And God says in this passage, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. My plans, God says, are so much bigger than what you have in mind. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne, David, shall be established forever. In accordance with these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And so he declares this blessing on David that is a way of saying, my plans are so much bigger than your plans. And God knows that David is about to royally screw things up. He knows that Solomon is going to be a train wreck and Solomon's sons and sons and sons are going to be worse than him. Uh, but he knows like this is the path to the, the true kingdom that he has in mind. The rise of Israel is a stepping stone on our path to Jesus. David is not the king that we need. Jesus is. And Jesus is the king whose throne shall be made sure forever before him. Isaiah writes this 
um, you know, a few hundred years later. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the house of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so God says to David, I'm going to bless you. And that is, it's like a, the, that prophecy is fulfilled in part by Solomon, but it's really talking about Christ. It's talking about Jesus and how this whole thing is moving forward to Jesus. And when Jesus shows up, John writes this about him. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glories of the only son of the father, full of grace and full of truth. And the word dwelt, it's in Greek, it's not in Hebrew, but it's the same it's the same concept behind it that dwelt is that he came and he, like the tent and the, the tabernacle, he tabernacled among us. And so Jesus comes and dwells among us. It's incarnation. It's about relationship. He left in his home in heaven. <laughs> he was rich, became poor so that we who are poor might become rich. And the house where God dwells is now, if you are in Christ, it's the Holy Spirit is in you. The Bible says that if you have accepted that it's not about your ability to follow the laws so that God will approve of you, but it's your understanding that you, you just can't. Your sin problem is too big for that, and you don't need to because God's grace is there for you, that he has died on the cross to do something for us that we could not do for ourselves. And he's risen from the dead to show that he's more powerful than the power of sin and the power of death and to give us the hope that we can be righteous before him and live with him forever. And he says, I send my spirit not so that I can live in some big house in Jerusalem, but I can be with you right now. And that's the promise of this passage, and it's the promise of the gospel. So when things go well for you, the rise of, I, you know, I don't, whoever, the rise of Adam, the rise of Jeff, you know, when things go well, don't let God become an afterthought. Know that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, and blessed be the name of the Lord, and he's always there. Don't give yourself too much credit and God too, too, too little credit, but know that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And don't assume that God's ways are your, your ways, but remember the gospel. Remember the gospel, that his ways are better, and be really, really flexible with what he says may be coming next for you. Father, thanks for this passage and how it fits into the bigger story and how it, it sheds light on our story. And most of all, God, Father, uh, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that this is not about what we do for you. Um, it's not about earning your favor. Um, we thank you that you don't wait till we get it together to be at work in our lives or to put blessing on some of our bad plans, knowing that you can work them into your amazing plan for us, God. Uh, but your grace is something that's beyond what we can even comprehend. And for that, uh, we are so grateful. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name.